Good morning, friends. Today's message is Spiritual Warfare 101. And I have two texts I'm going to refer to during the course of this message. Uh, first from Genesis 14 and then from Hebrews 7. I don't suppose it would come as any surprise if I were to tell you, friends, it's time to put on the whole armor of God and stand against every attack of the enemy. I mean, that's been true since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. But this morning, the battle rages all around. And if we don't see it or hear it, it's only because the battle is being fought in the spiritual realm. And that, by the way, is why this is not primarily a political issue. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't seek a political victory. Now, with that as sort of an introduction, we turn to our text, Genesis chapter 14. And immediately it grabs our attention because this chapter records the very first battle in the Bible. This ancient story, which may at first seem to have no relevance to us, actually contains the basic principles of spiritual warfare. It tells us how to fight and how to win. It reveals Satan's diabolical strategy, and it teaches us crucial truths we need to know. Now, this chapter falls into two parts, and the first 16 verses go into great detail describing the first war in the Bible. Let me briefly summarize what they say. Uh, In the days of Abraham, five pagan kings lived near the southern end of the Dead Sea. Two of the kings ruled over the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, whenever you see those two cities mentioned in the Bible, they're always connected with gross moral evil. By the time of the New Testament, they they came to symbolize the moral evil of this world. Now, these five pagan kings were conquered by four pagan kings from the east. And for 12 years, the five kings paid tribute to the four kings, But in the 13th year, they rebelled, refused to pay, which caused the four kings to declare war against them. Now, in telling this story, I have emphasized that all the kings involved were pagan. That's important because when the pagans fight each other, there's normally no reason for God's people to get involved. I mean, Abraham, who's living in Canaan at first, has no reason whatsoever to care one way or the other. As some people might say, he didn't have a dog in the fight. But things changed when he learned that his nephew Lot had been taken captive when Sodom, where Lot was living, was overrun by the kings from the east. Now Abraham faces a moral crisis. What should he do about Lot? And to be honest, there were at least two reasons. I I think that Lot or Abraham didn't need to get involved. One was it wasn't his fight, and two, Lot had brought all of this on himself. Now, my second point is particular value because Lot had foolishly chosen the, quote, well-watered plains while leaving the scrubland to his uncle. But just as one wrong decision soon leads to another, at first he is merely living near Sodom, soon he's living in Sodom. No doubt Lot justified living in the midst of moral compromise by saying stuff like, I'm strong enough, or this isn't going to affect me, or maybe I could even be a light in the midst of darkness. Now, unfortunately, moral compromise never leads to anything good. And in this case, it led to Lot's capture by the four pagan kings. Genesis 14, verses 13 to 16, tell how Abraham responded when he heard the news. He led 318 trained fighters from his own household. And leading a daring nighttime raid, his tiny band routed the four pagan armies. Then he chased them all the way north of Damascus. In the process, he recovered enormous booty and rescued Lot and his family. And from this story, we can deduce four important principles of spiritual warfare. First of all, there's there's the danger of compromise. 
Even if Lot hadn't been in Sodom in the first place, Abraham would never have had to rescue him. I mean, when will we ever, when will we ever learn that nothing good comes from compromising our moral values? See, every time we try to set aside our Christian values in order to get along with the world, we're the ones who end up suffering for it. Well, second is the loyalty of love. And here we see Abraham t- risking his own life in order to save his wayward nephew. I mean, sometimes love will cause us to do things that seem pretty odd to outsiders. We may have to e- expend our resources in ways we didn't expect. <clears throat> now, tough love? Sure. But what about risky love? You know, C.S. Lewis said, love anything and you risk having your heart broken. The only way to spare yourself pain is to live inside of a casket, cut off from everyone and everything around you. Love doesn't just sit there and go, well, he's finally getting what he deserves. No, love cares enough to get involved, even at the risk of being hurt. Third is the importance of preparation. When the moment came, Abraham could instantly call forth 318 trained men. Now, when I first read that a long time ago, I thought, I wonder who trained them. Well, Abraham did. They were his personal special forces, ready to go into battle at a moment's notice. Now, the same holds true in our spiritual warfare. Since we never know where Satan will attack next, we must be ready to respond at a moment's notice. That means being prayed up, studied up, with our armor on, with the sword of the Spirit in our hand. It means being sober at all times, watching for the fiery darts of the enemy. Sleeping soldiers will soon be dead soldiers. Well, fourth is the courage to fight. And here we see Abraham's courage. He didn't hesitate even against a much larger force. He had the courage to fight because he knew his cause was just. In this he models for us Ephesians 6.12 where it says, Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Now, as we move into the second half of Genesis 14, one battle is over, but another one is about to begin. As Abraham is returning home, two kings come out to meet him, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Now, these two guys could hardly be more different. Bera, who is the king of Sodom, rules over the most vile, perverse, morally corrupt city in all the world. He represents the ultimate end of mankind as it turns away from God. Now, the king of Salem is a mysterious man named Melchizedek. Verse 18 tells us that he was the king of Salem, which is kind of a reference to Jerusalem, which was called the city of peace. But his name in Hebrew means king of righteousness, and he's called a priest of God most high. So here's a Gentile king who somehow has come to know the one true God. The particular name for God used here is El Elyon, the Most High God. It refers to the God above all other gods, the supreme ruler and lord of the universe. He's the God who reigns far above the false gods of the pagans. Now, i got to admit to you, all of this is rather mysterious, and there are a whole lot of questions that I'm not going to answer yet this morning. But of the greatest interest are the words this mysterious Melchizedek says to Abraham in verses 19 and 20. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed by God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. You see, Melchizedek does two things for Abraham. He blesses him in the name of the Lord and reminds him of the true source of his victory. It's as if he was saying, Abraham, how do you think you managed to defeat those four armies? 
Do you think it was your brilliant military strategy? <laughs> Come on, buddy, forget it. You took that tiny handful and you defeated a much larger army only because God himself gave you the victory. He delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, at this crucial moment, the king of Sodom speaks with what seems to be a pretty tempting offer. He says to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. So he's tempting Abraham to keep the spoils of victory. And no doubt this meant a chance to become even richer than Abraham already was. Now, before we go any further, let's remember that Abraham had every right to keep the spoils from all of these battles. After all, he was the one who risked his own life to rescue the lot. Now, we've all heard it said that to the victor go the spoils. I mean, nobody could criticize him for saying yes to such an offer. He might even rationalize it by arguing that accepting the spoils would allow him to give even more to God. But he didn't. He just said no. He turned down the king of Sodom without even batting an eyelash. No long wait, no give me some time to pray about it, no doubts, no inner hesitation. I mean, listen to his answer to the king of Sodom in verses 22 and 23. He said, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. You see, Abraham knew all about Sodom. He knew what kind of people lived there and what kind of sin took place there. He wanted nothing to do with it. Because he had sworn an oath to God, he had the moral courage to say no to temptation even when others might have said yes. So why didn't Abraham keep the spoils of war? Well, because they came from an evil source. He, he wanted no alliance with Sodom. He knew that God was enough, and he wanted Sodom to get no credit whatsoever, and he wanted God to get all of the glory. I mean, this, I think, kind of illustrates three characteristics of victorious faith. The first of these is humility. It's seen in the fact that Abraham voluntarily offered a tithe to Melchizedek in verse 20. As Hebrews 7 points out, you only make an offering to someone you regard as greater than yourself. Even though he had just won an impressive victory, Abraham realized that Melchizedek was greater than he was, and so he offered his one-tenth of all everything he had taken in battle. The second principle here is generosity. It's seen in the fact that while Abraham would take nothing for himself, he offered part of all of the spoils to those men who were with him and who fought that battle. And the third principle here is purity. It's seen in the fact that Abraham would not compromise his values because he knew that the king of Sodom, in offering the spoils, was essentially like a, I hate to say it, like a Washington lobbyist trying to buy influence with dirty money. Now, when you look at Genesis 14 in perspective, you realize that there are really two battles here. One between Abraham and the pagan kings, and the other between Abraham's godly conscience and the pull of moral compromise. I mean, this ancient story forces us to confront some very penetrating questions. Questions like, is God enough for you? Or do you also need what the world has to offer? Well, to answer that, let me draw four principles that stand out here from Genesis 14. First of all, there will be continual conflict in the Christ follower's life. Friends, no one ever arrives. If Romans 7 teaches us anything it is that even the best Christ followers will struggle with sin till the day they die. If Paul had to fight with sin, so will you, so will I. And second, a great temptation often comes after a great victory. And that's precisely what happened to Abraham. The king of Sodom came to him after his great victory, not before. And the same will happen to us. 
I don't know about you, but have you ever had a great victory, a marvelous answer to prayer, won a major battle, or finished a big project, accomplished a personal goal? Well, if so, watch out. Temptation often comes in the afterglow of a great victory. And third, as we grow, we will continually uh, be tested regarding our ultimate choice in life. Abraham had to decide whether God was enough or if he also needed the treasures of Sodom. Don't be surprised if you are tested this week. And fourth, only when you glimpse the greatness of God will you have the strength to withstand temptation. And that's what happened to Abraham. It was only because he had lifted his hand to God Most High that he had the inner strength to resist the king of Sodom. I mean, some of us spend way too much time worrying about temptation when we ought to spend more time contemplating the Lord. When your God is big enough, temptation will be small enough that you can win the battle. Now, I got one last question, then we're done. The question is, just who is this Melchizedek guy? Well, it may interest you to know that he's only mentioned three times in the Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and in the book of Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews 7 tells us more about him than Genesis 14 does. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Well, again, first of all, his name means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without a father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That's in in, in Hebrews. See, the key phrase is in verse 3. Melchizedek is like the Son of God. Now, some people have wondered if Melchizedek was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. See, like Melchizedek, Jesus is both a king, having the authority to help us, and a priest, having a heart that's sympathetic to our needs. But here's the writer's conclusion of the matter in Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See, everything hinges on that last phrase, he always lives. If Jesus is dead, we have no hope and our faith is in vain. But if Jesus is alive, then he's able to save us completely. I mean, the word means completely and forever. And the King James says to the uttermost. So I got three crucial conclusions. Because Jesus is alive, our salvation is completely sure and eternally secure. Because Jesus is alive, our needs completely met today, to tomorrow, and forever. And because Jesus is alive, our ultimate victory is guaranteed. Now, I know these have been difficult days for all of us this last almost two years, and I'm sure days ahead of us. Satan attacks us on any, many levels, and the way he attacks me may not be the way he attacks you. But I do know what he wants to do. He wants to divide us, to discourage us, to defeat us. In the day of battle, you have two options. You can fight or you can flee. Abraham was willing to fight, and that's why he won the victory. Friends, our only hope is to turn our eyes to Jesus. Hebrews 12.1 exhorts us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He faced the same battle, and because of it, he went to the cross. When you feel yourself growing weary, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't look to sinful men or sinful leaders, but focus on the Son of God. He has not brought us this far to cause us to fall. He will give us the strength to keep on bringing us safely home in the end. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion. God bless.